Okay, third episode's the charm. I'm Natasha, and... I'm Red. And together we are Syllogism, a science, culture, and philosophy challenge podcast on the edge of chaos. This week's challenge was to read two essays by the American poet Ralph Waldo Emerson. Today we'll discuss self-reliance, but stay tuned for part two, where we'll talk about his essay on friendship. Enjoy! Okay, this is <laughs> wow. Yeah, be yourself, man. Be your fucking um... self. I'm so, I'm so glad we did this. I read this just because it's Emerson the first time, and I really didn't know much about Emerson because in school I didn't learn about Emerson. Did you? I did. I both learned about Emerson and Thoreau in high school, actually. I, I didn't learn about it maybe because I went to high school in Florida, and there's no fucking culture in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, the truth is anyone who actually ventures out into the woods is consumed by dinosaur-style uh, insects. Indeed. I mean, uh, Edison, <laughs> the whole time I lived in Fort Myers, I never went to the Edison home, but I went just recently and realized Edison moved there to get the fuck away. Like, he was like, no one should live here. And then, you know, he lived right next door to Henry Ford. But yeah, <laughs> this is a swamp. It's uninhabitable. So everybody think, moves down there, of course. I think this is proof that Ford really just was working on developing the automobile in order to carry around a microclimate in which giant dinosaur-sized uh, insects could not attack you, and they would have a strong aversion to it with air conditioning. So that's my theory. Yeah, but it was open. The, the Model T was open. <laughs> well, he had to. This was a concept. I'm sure somewhere in the back of his mind was, I got to get the hell out of here. So, <laughs> so are, are we in the pre-recording phase? No, I think, we'll, I think we've, we've started. So I think let's talk about self-reliance. The first okay. quote we both selected was about conformity. This really, I think, is the ultimate catalyst for self-reliance, and that is that society itself drives conformity. And so the quote is, society everywhere is in conspiracy against the manhood of every one of its members. The virtue in most request is conformity. Self-reliance is its aversion. It loves not realities and creators, but names and customs. And so uh, with this, um, there is a, a clear war of the collective born of society on the individual. Yep, there is. It's, I mean, we, we talk about this in almost every episode now that we've done. It's the atomization versus the tribalization of mo the modern world. Yes, but I wonder, is current societal, the current societal model of atomization, really self-reliance. And so it's almost as though the atomization itself is still a societal constraint. The, the atomization we experience now is all to serve a collective purpose, but it's but ultimately it's to serve an individual purpose because the way I think about it, you know, I have this idea about a corporate global monoculture and individuality sells 
or it has sold in terms of liberalism up until this point, now collectivism is selling because I think people are yearning for more collective thought and they're, they're very isolated. They've reached the epitome of atomization and individuation and they're yearning for a more collective experience. But you're right. It's like, we're all marionettes on this corporate string being told, okay, you guys be individuals. Okay, no, let's be collective. Let's, and it's the antithesis of self-reliance. Well, well, yes. And I, I would even go a little bit further and say that the degree to which we have been driven to embody individuality, that individuality was still a representation of a collective. When you look at anything corporate, a production of something that is a replica of a replica of a replica really is just the dissemination of conformity. I belong to X tribe because I'm wearing this Nike swoosh that everybody recognizes. I've fallen victim to this myself. I uh, am basically an Oakley whore. So I have so many uh, Oakley sunglasses that it's obscene. Really, I should just sell them all and buy a new house. It's not that I am asked to be an individual. It's that I'm asked to express what might be individuality within the constraints of a collective. And so in this way, at no point through corporation, almost by definition, are we finding anything like true individuality. There's no way we can be individuals in the midst of other people. You know, the whole hell is other people quote. It's, it's impossible because we are always being impinged upon by the ideals of society and other people. So it really goes against Emerson's ideology. But I think Emerson's like, nah, man, fuck all that. I don't care if it's in reflection of other people. All that matters is that you believe that you are being self-reliant. It's really about your core belief that you are taking care of self. Hmm. Do you feel like you are being your authentic self, regardless of whether that's actually possible or not? This is always the edge of chaos. Like everything is asymptotic. There's no way you can be an absolute individual, but approaching the point. Right. But there is something in this idea of selfhood that he explains that I almost completely disagree with. And so I take a pretty strong stance against this. I I think the whole idea that we have a self that is not perpetually informed by societal constraints uh, is just, it's, it's, well, it's wrong. And that is because we so thoroughly absorb social cues from the time we're we little ones until we're adults that even in solitude, we are suffocated by the demands of society. And I even wrote something about this a while back. And so my my own personal quote, my non-Emersonian, anti-Emersonian quote is, the self is societally constrained and the masks we wear to conform so thoroughly suffocate the soul that even in private moments, we are lifeless without blood or fire or breath. Remove your mask, inhale, be. So for instance, even during this time of the pandemic, it's probably the best time to consider what it means to be yourself. That so much of what I do or think I would want to do, I don't. And so I could be something like the manifestation of the deepest possible id, and I am not. And I am always 
looking at what I'm doing, asking whether or not I ought to, and from is to ought, or between is and desire and ought, is a kind of constraint that comes to me, not from myself, because the impulse is there, but it's from society and the belief that in some way I will be judged. And then I had this weird idea where you look around and everywhere that it's possible, your brain kind of constructs faces. And it's almost as though society itself has given you such an idea that anything that you do that's outside of the norm is you know, to be judged or anathema or something of that sort, that you don't take actions because everywhere there are faces watching you. And you can see this as a projection in your pattern recognition, such that the idea that God is watching you everywhere might actually be manifested in the way that we uh, perceive faces everywhere. Yeah, I haven't experienced pareidolia. (laughs) (laughs) I think all actions are either in accordance with society or against society. So I, I agree with you that there may be no true self in a very Sartre-esque way. Everything we, we are is, is some reaction, some ping pong from all the events that are occurring around us or have, cur- have occurred in the past. There's this internal compass that guides us. And I think what Emerson is referring to is that you should not be thinking about society. You should avoid consciously thinking about society's reaction. Whatever you're thinking like, oh, I I go from thinking and hesitate to doing, that is what Emerson's talking about, about being your true self. Hmm. If you're hesitating, and since I've started writing and going to these writing groups, I'm feeling more and more that I have hesitated for too long. And what we need to do is really the thing that we fear the most. I mean, that's partly why I'm doing this podcast now. I have this fear. I might never get another industry job again. And that is terrifying because I don't have a plan for making money. <laughs> <laughs> Only fan. Dot syllogism. Only dot. fans dot syllogism. Oh, God. <laughs> I had to say it. See, and that's not a fear. I don't fear doing that. I'm, re- I'm repulsed by it. So that's different. Even here, now you're talking about your concerns while podcasting and how it's actually quite, well, it's quite terrifying to have a conversation like this, to have your face out there, to have your voice out there, to have your ideas available for someone else to pick apart and scrutinize and uh, resonate with or not. And you'll notice that even in conversation like this, though it's just you and I, and we would talk like this anyway, the fact that I know that someone will see it that isn't us means that automatically I have a kind of weird meta-perceptual lens that is above and beyond the conversation we're having. There's a part of me that's over here behind my head somewhere, like the multi-faced um, <laughs> part I have over there that is actually watching. And so the first couple of episodes, what did I do? I watched myself and then I picked myself apart. Oh, look at those gestures. Look at the way I move my eyes too much. Look at how I just said, um, and that's a measure of disfluency. So I'll have to hold you to this then, because I don't do that for some reason. I'm not super judgmental of myself when I watch this, when I'm editing it back. But I can see that you might be, but I, I think it's maybe because I suggested this to you. I had been planning on doing a podcast forever and I had you in my mind for the past six months as a co-host, 
but maybe you weren't ready. Like I was, I had marinated on this idea for a while and I was like, fuck it. Also, you still work in a corporate setting. I don't. So I have less inhibition when it comes to saying whatever the fuck I'm going to say. And that letting go is really scary, but I would, I can't go back. I can't put the toothpaste back in the tube now. So I'm like, let's fucking go. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's coming to me. That's coming to me. It's just, uh, you know, it takes a little bit of time and, and practice. My entire experience online really has been, here are ideas. Here's something imagistic, but it is not necessarily me. I wonder what Emerson would say about social media. Because inherently, social media is all the things we just talked about. It's not self-reliant. What I think, like this, I think is a good point for the, the next quote, the quote that I had. What I must do is all that concerns me, not what the people think. This rule, equally arduous in actual and in intellectual life, may serve for the whole distinction between greatness and meanness. It is the harder because you will always find those who think they know what is your duty better than you know it. It is easy in the world to live after the world's opinion. It is easy in solitude to live after our own. But the great man is he who in the midst of crowd keeps with perfect sweetness, the independence of solitude. And so this is my challenge to you, dear friend, (laughs) that in the midst of this paradoilic crowd that (laughs) you- (laughs) That occupies mostly my own head. Uh, that you keep with perfect solitude and just say the things because you are a brilliant person and you are interesting and everything that you have to say in our conversations is exactly the reason I wanted to do this with you. So fuck all these listeners, fuck you listeners, like fuck you. I'm doing this for me. And if you like it, cool. We could be cool. I suggest that you, me, and everyone else do exactly what we need to do so long as it does not harm others. Well, yes, uh, it sounds like a very libertarian uh, <laughs> way of looking at things. It's too. not though, because you don't, I mean, it's not property that I care about. It's the, the physical, mental, social well-being of, of others. Mm-hmm. Infringing on someone's right to property is also a kind of harm. Um, so a lot of those things I think still relate, not directly to, or not merely to libertarianism, but uh, in, in a way, there's a kind of libertarian streak to this idea that- the spiritual um, libertarianism. Since society is going to demand certain constraints on your behavior and your beliefs and your morals and so forth, the only way to be a true individual is almost to be something like the devil in relation to society. You are going to do things that no one is going to like. People are going to think you're heretical, but you need to be willing to risk all of that in order to be a true individual. What that really seems to mean is that in relation to society, you are the devil, but the devil is a pathway to communion with the divine. And so now you have this union of opposites where you need to be against conformity to be an individual in order to be in communion with God. Uh, yeah. It's so fucking creepy, dude. <laughs> um. So, like, um, (laughs) Emerson was a pantheist. 
And I think that really is that like is that that's not like a map, right? A map like Pangea? <laughs> yeah, just... yeah, no, 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 like no, not like a map, but but we could have that, no, like a minor attracted person. Oh, <laughs> I don't use that term. They're fucking. <laughs> uh, Emerson was not a pedophile, as far as the you know historical documents can tell. He was a priest, motherfucker. He was an ordained <laughs> priest. Well, oh wait, that just don't even get me started with this. Even, <laughs> you've got to be kidding me. What his mother sent him to uh, be to the priesthood, and uh, he got married the same year he got ordained. So, mm-hmm. uh, so there's that. But then his wife died. I think tuberculosis, like two years later, and. I think he just fucking lost it. He was like, fuck God in this sense, fuck all of this shit and went to Europe. He went and met some of the great, like who was a William Wordsworth. I think he met in Europe and he would like met this dude. He met these dudes. He was like, man, these motherfuckers is dry as fuck. And he was like, I, I could do this. If these great men are so not great in real life, they're so ordinary, then why can't ordinary men be great? And in fact, all great men are ordinary men. And so this is when he really started to come into his own, but he developed this idea that God is not this entity. God is like Spinoza's God. God is everything. Einstein said, Spinoza's God is the God of lawful harmony, not the God who wants to you know, control people and make them do things. Emerson believed this. And so your idea that to be self-reliant is, is to be a God in a sense, a self-God it's embodying the deity. It's being the exactly. ultimate piece of all the other things. So if everyone were being their true self, we would have a perfect image of God. Right. But then strangely, this quote always puzzles me. A foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds adored by little statesmen and philosophers and divines. With consistency, a great soul has simply nothing to do. He may as well concern himself with his shadow on the wall. Speak what you think now in hard words and tomorrow speak what tomorrow thinks in hard words again, though it contradict everything you said today. So you shall be sure to be misunderstood. Is it so bad then to be misunderstood? Pythagoras was misunderstood and Socrates and Jesus and Luther and Copernicus and Galileo and Newton and every pure and wise spirit that ever took flesh. To be great is to be misunderstood. So he is talking about consistency. And I think this is him trying to say that the self is inconsistent, but you are supposed to be consistently yourself. Right. He talks about this idea that if you're any number of things, there are layers and layers of semi-transparent veils that ultimately lead down to me not being able to know who you really are because you identify with a thing and that identity is a consistent thing. Like in any profession, in any science, you commit yourself to like a body of knowledge. I can know you because I know what you are, what you identify yourself as. The individual is taking from so many different elements and is not exactly God, but as it aspires to be so, 
finds itself considering one idea and then another and is working itself. And he makes this note. It's like, the voyage of the best ship is a zigzag line of a hundred tacks. See the line from a sufficient distance and it straightens itself into the average tendency. You're demanded by society, by your job, by all kinds of things that define you to be narrowly consistent, that you do not tack but you're not going to make any progress of the human soul as an individual by staying on a straight line and not deviating. And so you must to make progress by zigzagging and tacking. And so you don't need to be consistent. The point is that you're trying to get yourself to something that is transcendental and that you're going to take a variety of paths, I think. Something like that. So, but overall, that actually is consistent. There's an overarching consistency to it. So he's not saying that being your true self, being self-reliant should, should not be a goal, but to be human is, is to folly. And that this is going to have you going to fuck up. Like it's going to be, it's not going to be perfect. There there's no straight line to progress. To err is human. To err is human. Exactly. And to be misunderstood, that this is a big thing today. You're asked to kind of put yourself in a box so that the algorithm can understand you because you don't exist in a digital space unless the algorithm can check and balance you and figure out where you belong in the world. And so while we're trying to create this digital homolog to reality, we're, the algorithm is trying to pigeonhole and they will pigeonhole the people who are the most consistent first. Everyone is fucking famous now. Everyone has some degree of fame or can at some level, but the ones who reach the top first tend to be the ones who are either most polarized or most consistent. I think Emerson would very much reject the digitization of the world because the ones that are left are going to be the ones that are potentially their truest selves or, or just out of the loop completely, but that, that may be the, that may be the goal. You and I disagree about this wildly all the time, but I think digital representations fail at so many levels to achieve a real parity with the analog. Currently. Forever. You think forever. (laughs) It's asymptotic. I think I do. I do think it's asymptotic. Well, it's, but again, it approaches uh, the infinite but it's not going to get there. And I think the fact that it doesn't get there means that we will never have a real complete representation. I don't know. I think it's like the matrix. It's um, there's plenty of people who eat, they fucking steak, just sitting there like, and then there's people who always feel out of the ordinary. There's people who never quite feel comfortable in this world. Perhaps those people are the ones who, if this is a simulation, those people are the ones who are at the leading edge and are not quite attuned with the digital reality. They're like, no, I, I can't vibe with this. Something doesn't feel right. If in, you know, in people who think this way, there's this idea that the simulation resets every so often around potentially like fine, you know, big financial events, at least at this stage in human existence. How would you know if the simulation reset? What would be the cue or how would you feel if you were one of these people in this simulated reality? Like if you're in a video game, how do you know when when a glitch happens or when something happens in the game and you're kind of like something's off? 
I know you don't believe this. I know you don't think it. And I don't know that I think it either, but my mind goes there. I think I I would need to do more thinking about this. I reject this idea that it's a simulation (laughs) so thoroughly that I don't even spend my time there. It's like, to me, it's like arguing flat earth. You can physically show that it is not a flat earth. There is no way to, to, it's like God, there's no way to show that we're in a simulation. We're going to have to do a whole episode on this. Yeah. Yeah. We should explore that. Uh, in depth. Okay, so. <laughs> so you're talking about how um, we are all able to be in some way algorithmized. Well, yes and no. Some of it is almost like a kind of uh, hypnotic influence. So I, I like something and then something else is suggested to me. It's like that. And then I kind of like that too, and so on and so forth. So you're being pulled along to like things that you don't necessarily even really need to be liking. You're being put into boxes that you wouldn't necessarily choose for yourself. So I don't think that it's that people are that predictable. It's, I think it's that we're confronted with predictions that are similar enough. So you liked the original image and you're like, that is, mm, that's, it struck you, it struck a chord. And then the next image is kind of put in underneath it. So you like it, but just a little bit less, it eroded the original feeling you had. And I think this is why we're all morphing into this digital world. This is how it happens. We slowly morph into avatars of ourselves, liking things and enjoying things that are hyper-realistic or just slightly different than reality. And we barely even notice it. So the quote on imitation says, insist on yourself, never imitate. Your own gift you can present every moment with the cumulative force of a whole life's cultivation. But of the adopted talent of another, you have only extemporaneous half-possession. That which each can do best, none but his maker can teach him. No man yet knows what it is, nor can till the person has exhibited it. Where is the master who could have taught Shakespeare? Where is the master who could have instructed Franklin or Washington or Bacon or Newton? Every great man is unique. So he's saying, be your fucking self. Like (laughs) do what you want to do. And this made me think immediately about my apprenticeship as a scientist, because all scientists today are apprenticed to someone in the greater academic scheme. So the only way to become a scientist today is to apprentice under a great teacher, or at least someone who is renowned or well-known. You are known to the greater public because of your pedigree in science. So we have this thing called neurotree in back when I was in neuroscience, we have, you know, all this kind of like lineage. It shows like, Oh, I was descended from fucking whoever the fuck. And I left science. That's like like the, uh, the air number, right? So it's uh, how far away are you from having worked directly with, uh, with air which he was a great mathematician and he's published so widely, but you wanted to work with that guy. And so that's your pedigree. The degree, your proximity to him is almost like a testament to your brilliance. Yeah. It's like the six degrees of of Kevin Bacon or whatever separation. Uh, Yeah. He's like the Kevin Bacon of math. Yeah. Not Kevin Bacon, but Francis Bacon. <laughs> <laughs> I look, I'm just all about the bacon. Just bacon. Me too. I just have bacon. Um, <laughs> so 
So this is the issue uh, in science today, in academics today, you apprentice under someone and then you have to get far enough away from them but still remain loosely associated such that you can get these grants that are at pay lines of 4% from the National Institute of Health or from the National Science Foundation or wherever people are seeking academic grants. So that is the challenge is to not only find the person you want to apprentice under, but also to then create se enough separation from them. And you do so by going on to a postdoc or a next, a next level of study, and you kind of create this individual proje project. But science itself is so repetitive now and not bold and not daring. And E.O. Wilson actually talked about this because we're so concerned with conformity and so concerned with making steady, eventual, normal scientific progress, that anyone who thinks outside of the current paradigm is either a pariah or just ignored until someone of a high enough pedigree repeats it and steals it and does their own analysis of it. So yeah. science is fucked. <laughs> well, and that's, and that's why, so it used to be, we would see great people come along and make astonishing breakthroughs that were uh, decades, if not perhaps a century or so ahead of their time. So even when you think about uh, what could be said of, of Einstein, the ideas were at least half a century ahead of being discoverable by someone else if they were to do something like linear progress. Uh, imitation itself constrains even the genius of insight that we probably would have manifest in all branches of study, I guess, referring back to the idea of consilience. Yeah, so, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. It's a consilient idea that imitation is shite. Can you even think of who trained Einstein? Einstein was a fucking patent clerk. Well, that's, that was his job, but uh, in school, he would have at least learned from someone. I have no idea. Do, does it even matter? Someone that brilliant and, and unconstrained by someone else makes these leaps that themselves become fields of study. And so our advancement relies on one person bold enough to be a cognitive individualist. It mm -hmm. takes courage enough to break away from the constraints of conformity that makes you actually a genius in your courage. It is courage because these people are often pariahs. They're, they're not looked upon fondly until people start going, oh shit. Oh, something happens where these people break the seal and, and then people are like, oh, damn. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But then they try to replicate it. And this, this idea of pedigree, I'm sorry. I don't know very many great scientists that have come from a pedigree and have relied upon that pedigree. It's, it's the, the ideas that perpetuate. And typically when you have come from that lineage, the ideas that you come up with are really just extensions of the original. The paradox of, uh, of pedigree then is something like it gives you access that opens doors that allows you to pursue things. But in your pursuit, you're also derivative. It should give you a path to freedom, but it doesn't really. It opens a door that really is like an antechamber to the original door. It's not like it opens the door and you're going out into the wild and looking at uh, you know the blue sky or something of that sort. It is a bit of a paradox. So what is the difference then between mentorship 
and imitation. I think it's the ability to rely on self in the midst of other. Um, so I always recommend this book to everyone, and we must absolutely do uh, uh, an episode on this. It's uh, Finite and Infinite Games by James P. Carse. And he has this one quote in there that, that, uh, that I always refer to, and it is, I am the genius of myself. When we're thinking about what it means to be a genius in this way, it requires that self-reliance and individuality that breaks away from the shackles of conformity in order to even be able to be the you that is potentially a genius. I think to be that genius, it absolutely requires us to be right here, right now. It's, it's a concilian idea again. I mean, I can't think of, an, of a great thinker out there who did not, was not a proponent of being in the present. And people often ask, like they think about building knowledge in science, like, okay, but I have to get all of this background knowledge to, to be able to build. And while that's true, each moment of building background knowledge is you being yourself in that moment because you're hungry for knowledge. And so when I'm asking questions, at least how I feel like I've developed as a scientist, we talked about the Socratic method a little bit. When I was developing and still am, I'm eternally developing as a scientist, I'm asking questions. And my questions in this moment are what lead me to building that knowledge. Cause I'm like, well, what about this? And then I go and seek that answer and build off of it and check kind of, has this been asked? Has that been asked? And so you're building out all these kind of streams, but it's being focused in the moment. I'm not necessarily worried about building this linear progression of knowledge in my mind. Like, okay, this happened, then this happened. And historically this happened. No, I don't give a fuck. I'm like, where did my questioning lead me? So thinking about this idea of the Socratic method, there's this guy, this guy, his name is uh, Win Wanger. I believe he recently uh, passed away. Don't make fun of the name. W-E-N-G-E-R. He came up with this idea of image streaming as a way to increase the likelihood you're going to come up with an original idea. And, and so the, the basic concept is, and you need to say it out loud because there's something about talking rather than using your internal voice that also activates different neural structures. But the, the idea is you kind of close your eyes, talk in the present and allow the images in your mind to just unfold and you watch things morph and concatenate and so forth. It'd be really interesting to, to do an episode where we just do that as a challenge. I want that as a challenge. That is you accessing the part of you that is brilliant, unique, self-reliant, and a genius. That's what that is. I love that. It reminds me of this movie, this terrible movie with my husband. There's no shortage of terrible movies to be seen. And so, <laughs> <laughs> so we're watching this movie. It was with Tom Holland called Chaos Walking. It was awful. The concept of it is in the future, we've gone to this other planet to colonize it. And something happens to the men there. Their unconscious thoughts, what they're thinking is kind of like live streamed to everyone. So when you walk past someone, you can kind of see if they're picturing something like an image comes through, or if they're having an internal monologue, then those thoughts come out. So you can hear everything that someone is thinking. And the part that kind of annoyed me, but I also found interesting was that women, you couldn't see their thoughts. <laughs> so women were the devil. I don't know what the explanation is for why there's a difference between men and women, but just the idea that you could see someone's passing thoughts 
which you know they're they're going on all the time. And what you would do with the information if I wasn't able to conceal and uh, and curate what it is that I say to the world, it almost interestingly enough it fits into this idea of self reliance because you being able to have your thoughts thoroughly perceived by someone else uh, allows you to have immediate authentic self-expression. So they would conceal it. So in this movie, to to hide his thoughts or to stop, to me, it wasn't hiding your thoughts. It was to stop from thinking. (laughs) He's like, I am Tom Holland. I am Tom Holland, which was lame. Society would find a way to corrupt it. And we would basically de-evolve into non-thinking primates. What he was doing was the equivalent of a mantra, which is used in meditation to cease the endless stream of thought. Isn't that what any conformity does? I no longer need to think. The one quote, if I know your sect, I anticipate your argument, you know, from, from uh, self-reliance. And so a mantra is also a way of erasing the self. This is a perfect segue into talking about entropy, because in my mind, conformity is the ultimate heat heat death. That's the state that we're all headed toward. But we're going from one very ordered state into another. And so it's not ultimate entropy. It's like we're going from a liquid into a gas, but the gas is contained within this digital space. So it's not the ultimate state of entropy. We're just in another ordered state. And then we open up into another ordered state potentially after that. So it's the slow creep towards entropy, but along that, there's all these microstates that we're reaching. This transition from digital, from analog to digital is just another microstate that we are, we're reaching different levels of order. If I may, I think this is the antithesis of entropy. This is negentropy. Every time that you try to distill something, you're losing so much resolution that what you're really doing is taking away the natural entropic state and trying to create uh, a conformity to an idea that is actually trying to constrain entropy. Every representation is itself a, a way to reduce the natural entropic state of the world. And to the degree that we're going through this in digital space, I would even argue we're going through a kind of de-individuation that is also, again, conformity, is a way to reduce the natural entropy of the real world by taking people and making them into the equivalent of NPCs. And so I want to draw a parallel between that de-individuation, the reduction in entropy, and what happens with people in these spaces with the increase in depression and anxiety. What What I think I see is that the more we engage with spaces that try to algorithmize our identities, the reduction in entropy is the reduction of growth and the chaos that leads to transcendence. And that anxiety and despair that comes from it, that is clearly augmented by it, has something to do with a distance from a self, which is further a distance from the ideal and and God. So we're in purgatory. Uh, yes, uh, self-constructed purgatory. That's that's my. I think that's my thesis, at least for the moment. That sounds about right. I mean, if you think about it in relation to the book we're reading for book club, Civilized to Death, 
He says that we are the only animals that create zoos for ourselves. Interestingly enough, you saying that what we're doing is trying to capture kind of the entropy that's happening and reduce it. We're trying to stop the heat death of the universe. It sounds almost kind of heroic that we're trying to withhold from the eventuality of everything. But when you look outside of even the heat death of the universe, there's, you know, the idea of the multiverse. And then there's also the idea of the rebirth of the universe, the big crunch that even after heat death, there's not nothing, it's reborn rebirth. So, I mean, it sounds heroic because we're looking at it from a, an anthropomorphic standpoint that oh, it's good for me if we, if we try to not get to heat death. It's good for me and all the things that I know if we slow down this process. But again, it may be like you're saying against God, against nature, if we try to block the natural progression of all things. Right. So entropy is growth. So in the absence of, of entropy, what do you have? You have stagnation. Yeah. I think we're coming at it from slightly from, from different angles, but I think my, my, my conception is that it's entropy that, that drives us toward something more perfect. You need the chaos in order to become something more complex, to become something more real and truly yourself, closer to the divine. The control of what we imagine might be the, uh, this idea of heat death actually makes us cold. Uh, it freezes us almost like a kind of, it's like a cryostasis of, of the soul. And so you no longer evolve, you no longer adapt, you're frozen in time. The things which you can interact with are uh, lower and lower resolution. You are less real and less godlike. Damn. You know, the heat death of the universe is a cold state. So by rejecting the eventual frigidity of where we will be, we're creating a simulated frigidity and postponing the eventual frigidity that will come anyways. We're prolonging our suffering. <laughs> well, well, and, and we're dead before our time. It is a kind of, uh, it is a kind of, Ooh, I don't like it. Suicide. Yeah. It's a kind like of suicide. It. So Ooh, get, like out, get out the motherfucking metaverse. It's killing. I don't like it. I don't like it. <laughs> okay. But what if you go in the metaverse and blow it up? Like Ted Kaczynski was right. (laughs) You know, have we just, we've reached the point of no return. We're fucked. We're dead. Like, is that, is that where we're at? Is that where we're at? We're amusing ourselves with really bad uh, representations of the real. And we're trying to pretend that there are newer and newer spaces to escape into, but they're all these low resolution representations. The real world is where you need to be. Your body, your mind, your soul all know this. And it's such a case that um, there's this whole idea of biophilia. So there's this, this response to being out in nature that is profound and calming and resetting. The fact that we deny ourselves those things and distract ourselves with bullshit representations uh, is is only going to continue to make us feel like we're we're in control of something that we're advancing, but really we are disintegrating. I think this is a very humanist perspective. I what you're, what, what you're I, am, I identify as a human, a human, <laughs> death, but a human. <laughs> well, okay. I mean, but, you know, making so as a scientist, uh, the thing that I always thought of was. 
I want to know more. I want to know all the things, maybe not all the things, but I want to keep moving towards knowing more. And so my natural first inclination in terms of like a general philosophy is to preserve some downstream descendant of humanity so that we can keep finding out more about the universe. If that's my true North, uh, achieving a greater understanding, then I might not consider myself a humanist because there may be other things that come after us. My perspective may be that we want to conserve consciousness. And I think that is, that's probably where I've landed. That's probably what I care about. I'm not a pantheist like Emerson. I'm not someone who is like, nature is God. Uh, I don't know if I think that. If I look at it from like someone like Elon Musk's perspective, the idea of creating a multiverse or a, met, or a metaverse, I'm sorry, is going to help potentially preserve consciousness. Because if we get to an eventual state of too many cooks in this motherfucking kitchen, we're going to have to bottle up some of their bullshit in order to preserve consciousness. We need some people to be in the matrix. We need some people to shut the fuck up and just go play candy crush. Right. Isn't that everybody left of the bell curve? Uh, I, I just, I, <laughs> I don't. Well, some of them can stay, right? Some of them can can stay. But if you want to go be in the matrix, in the Dyson sphere powered matrix, fine. Then Elon Musk can go to Mars and wherever the fuck else they want to go. But people very much resist this idea. There are some people, I think, that it is their own self-reliance to fall into conformity. If we don't believe in free will, if we believe we are all engineered in some way to respond to our environment, those people, their self is to just conform and fall into line. And we, we should let them be themselves, right? We're not all going to want to exist as our most independent selves at the same degree. You may be more of a natural individual than I am. Clearly, look at this afro. <laughs> <laughs> no, I look pretty conformist today. I'm pretty tame with my with my hair done from yesterday. Got your hair did, girl. I know. I actually I actually went out, so I did my hair. Like mm -hmm. I had a friend date yesterday. Speaking of friendship, so let's pause there as the little okay. little teaser for next <laughs> the next episode, which we're going to record right now. I'm going to do a wardrobe change in the middle. I don't know what I'm going to do. We'll see. Okay. That's, <laughs> now it's inauthentic because we just said we were going to do. We've, we've challenged ourselves to read Friendship as a Companion to Self-Reliance by Emerson. So if you want to read along for the next episode, read that. Like right now, like so we can. <laughs> if, if you don't read it, um, you have a friend in us. All right, that's it. That's it. Okay, that's the end. You've got a friend in Jesus. <laughs>